0: everyone and welcome to the legend of portal cast a podcast dedicated to avatar the last airbender the legend of korra and all things avatar um especially today because we are going to be talking about the promise the first of the collection of comics that came out after avatar ended and with me tonight i've got john
1: howdy howdy
0: (laughs) so how you been john
1: i've been all right um God, it's been like almost a year since I recorded, right?
0: <laughs> feels like, it. I mean, cuz we we started doing it, it was probably like spring when we were, we did that first run and then we did some in the fall which I know you haven't been able to join in on. So uh it's almost coming to a year. Holy crap, that's insane.
1: <laughs> I know, right? It feels like we just started it back up yesterday. But yeah, you know, I've been all right. I'm I'm excited to be back and uh You know, I'm finally out of the country. I'm living back in uh, the city. So, you know, with that comes uh, a lot of uh, busy times.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. You're a city slicker now. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) That's awesome, man. Well, I'm definitely glad to have you back on and uh, uh, really excited to talk about this. Um, I know both John and I were reading this book and all the other kind of comics and everything to kind of just get into spirit and headspace for everything this week. So uh, yeah, without further ado, let's let's get right into this. Um, so uh, The Promise came out uh, on October 9th, 2012. Um, so this was four years after the end of Avatar The Last Airbender. Uh, at this point, uh, we were starting to get Legend of Korra. So there was kind of Avatar content returning. But what was really cool is that this was the beginning of a long series of comics that is still continuing to this day of uh, basically continuing the story of avatar, the last airbender and the promise. It just, it doesn't waste any time. Um, So this was uh, created of course in supervision with Mike and Brian. So this is an official continuation of the avatar universe. Um, The script was written by um, Gene Luen Yang. Uh, He wrote a uh, novel, American born Chinese and has done a bunch of other great work as well. Um, Art and cover were by Guru Hiru, and the lettering was by Michael uh, Heisler. So basically when Mike and Brian decided to kind of do this comic series, it was this kind of conversation of like, how do we continue this story, and how are we going to keep it faithful to the original content, but still kind of branch out and explore new themes and stuff that we didn't have a chance to talk about in the series um so i don't know i mean do you remember when like when these books came out and like what you were kind of feeling at that point
1: yeah um i got the the first um paperback book uh not not the big old hardcover but the first like paperback when it came out and it was, uh, it was nice getting to see these characters again. Um, it really felt kind of like that unaired episode, I think. Mike and Brian were talking about that they wish they could have got with Zuko's mom, but we don't get to Zuko's mom um, until the second story in these comics. And, uh, you know, what I appreciate about it is I think a lot of people, um, you know, had – a lot of questions when the series ended because even though it seems kind of like, oh, you know, the good guys won, um, everything's hunky-dory now. um, Really, you know, if you think about it, um, realistically, it wouldn't be such a clean-cut ending. Like, there's still a lot of messy stuff to deal with, like the colonies that are still there. And, um, you know, how people are going to perceive Zuko as the Fire Lord. So I thought it was really interesting to delve into those kind of issues with The Promise.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, it was, I mean, you talk about, I mean, so many series end with, you know, a big battle or some kind of grand conflict, and then that's the end of a series. But what I love with these comics, and especially The Promise, it is dealing with the fact that, like, after a war happens, like there's, there's so much fallout afterwards and things that have to be dealt with. And I love that they jumped right in, uh, with this, with the promise. Um, and in terms of picking it up, I mean, they, they waste no time whatsoever. Um, the first couple pages, we kind of get a introduction. Uh, it's like very similar to the opening of the show, almost frame by frame. And, you know, we're seeing kind of, uh, Instead of, of course, audio, we're now seeing like Katara narrating this part. And then it kind of brings it into the present where in the show, I believe Anne can save the world. Then she says, and he did. And it was just, it's, it was such a cool way to kind of take something that we all were so familiar with and then kind of just say, yeah, now like that mission is, is done. But now here's a completely new story. Um, so we hear that there is this. Uh, whole movement called the Harmony Restoration Movement that basically is about returning the colonies to uh, the Earth Kingdom and kind of redrawing borders and kind of dealing with the fallout of the Hundred Year War. Um, and there's like a little scene with Earth King Quay who's like talking about this Harmony Restoration Movement. But then we go immediately to uh Iroh's tea shop or house and it's this the final scene of Avatar the Last Airbender it plays out Aang and Katara have that beautifully intimate moment and then immediately afterwards Sokka like walks out <laughs> it's such a great like continuation to like such a heartwarming moment
1: <laughs> yeah yeah Asaka uh, and his Oogies. Um, you know, I remember <laughs> when the when the book first came out, a lot of people were like, Oh, they're calling each other Sweetie. That's so, you know, stupid and and, and. But you know, that kinda grows on me, um, them calling each other Sweetie as you go through all the comics, like especially like after you get past the promise and they start dealing with some uh, pretty crazy stuff. Um, but you know, back to that scene, I kind of assume that uh, the uh the last scene was before the comic but then when they like pull up that that com or that scene um you know is happening within the comic that was kind of cool to me and yeah like you're saying it was cool to see uh the old school Katara narration um finally kind of take a turn to show you know hey we're we're past the show i remember back in uh when season three was Um, airing that we always kind of wish they would redo the opening to kind of reflect the fact that Avatar was Mm. thought to be dead, um, but they never did that. So it was nice to see it kind of take a little different turn, even though it's still mostly the same.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Um, And what's great about this story is, again, um, just how they get right into the plot. Um, I mean, within the first 10 pages, uh, we are seeing a scene where Zuko is making a request of Aang. I mean, everyone's kind of celebrating. There's a great tough blind joke of being like, you know what fireworks sound to me? <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> but then, you know, it goes to Zuko and Zuko is understandably thinking about how difficult it is going to be for him. Yes, it is a beautiful moment where, you know, good has conquered evil, but Zuko more than anyone is going to have to deal with something that is so unbelievably complicated. The world has hated the Fire Nation for the past hundred years, and they have left tangible and physiological scars on the world. And now he is the one who is the face of that and has to restore the Fire Nation's honor, not just only through an Agni Kai with his sister and, you know, seeing Ozai defeated by Aang. So he... Basically to ask of Aang, look, if I become like my father, you have to promise to end me. And um, what I really love that in the um, library edition of the book, there's all these like liner notes um, from Jean Luen Yang, Guru Hiru, and Mike and Brian. So I'm going to be sharing some of those tonight with these because I just, they're so, they're so great in terms of giving context to these moments. And in this moment, Um, Jean Luen Yang talks about how in Buddhist philosophy, which is what airbender philosophy is based on, um, consent changes the conversation when it comes to murder um, or killing someone. Murder is wrong, but killing with the victim's consent is referred to as voluntary euthanasia. A person can ask you to kill them if they're in tremendous pain or if they think they're a danger to others. And it's incredible that you know We are seeing a continuation of this airbender philosophy being tested and being pushed to the limit because so much of the beauty of that final conflict of the end of Avatar The Last Airbender was Aang knowing that he didn't want to kill Ozai and finding the solution to take his bending away, in- away instead. And now Zuko is saying, look man, I need you to be able to make me this promise that you will be able to and me, before I become, you know, I cause more pain to the world like my father did.
1: Yeah. And, um, you know, I wish I would have got those library editions because I had no idea there was those kind of notes in there. Because uh, when, you know, Zuko asks him, hey, you know, kill me, I always thought that was kind of extreme. But in that context of it uh, actually being kind of rooted in Buddhism, it makes a, a lot more sense to me. And it just goes kind of hand in hand with Aang being an airbender. And, uh you know I always thought especially you know watching Korra and then coming back to this you know that they they talk up Zuko and being best friends um the last thing I would ask my own best friend is hey you know can you kill me if I'm (laughs) being uh dangerous to people (laughs) like you would think uh just put me in jail you know like they did with his own father but um I guess Zuko is just someone who's always been kind of extreme, right? Yeah, no,
0: absolutely. That's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it, it's interesting because as soon as this scene is over, um, we have a time jump, and it's incredible with the difference in Zuko's appearance and demeanor. Um, the uh, the beautiful detail that Guru Hero put into uh, Zuko's design with just you know very shallow cheekbones you can tell he looks gaunt he has bags under his eyes you can tell he has been extremely restless he has been stressed and within these first few pages of this time jump we see he is paranoid he is frustrated and he is having another there's another assassination attempt on his life and it just in such a short amount of time shows the amount of pressure that Zuko has been under and how you know you you don't need to, any kind of montage sequence you can just tell that so quickly within that time jump which i thought was such a cool you know especially now that we're in the comics they have that freedom to kind of do those narrative movements without having to show a lot because they can just kind of immediately get there they can throw, they can show one year later, and they can just kind of immediately throw that at us.
1: Yeah, and I know I'm gonna be kind of jumping a little ahead here, but when I was reading this uh, chapter again. Um, it made me kind of think, like, what was Ozai like when he was Zuko's age? Like, did he have assassination attempts on his life um, from maybe a rogue Earth Nation person who got through the blockade or something? Or was the blockade even a thing back then? And, uh, you know, could that have possibly molded Ozai into this kind of person full of anger um, he became when he was an adult? Um, I just thought it was kind of you know, interesting thing to think about. I, I like reading this. It almost made me want like a Ozai prequel comic because mm. <laughs> uh, his character always kind of fascinated me because um, I don't know ever since that finale where they had the picture of baby Ozai, I never really thought of Ozai as like someone who could have once not been evil. Mm. But i um, thinking about that and the fact that, you know, Zuko's anger is kind of like Ozai's psyche forced onto Zuko through that Agni Kai. Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost mm-hmm. like those dual sides Iroh's always talking about are Ozai and Ursa fighting within them. Yeah. Um, it just makes me think like, uh, could Ozai have gone through something similar as Zuko was going through, um, you know, in this comic?
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, and it's it's great because... Uh, you know we we get to see so much of that complexity and we get to see another layer of Ozai and um you know after these assassination attempts uh zuko finds out uh that you know this woman who tries to assassinate him is from this village one of the colonies Dao and he goes there and he witnesses like firsthand the complexity of this whole issue um and I mean, again, this is such a, a wonderful topic for them to tackle because you have these Fire Nation colonies, and especially in the case of Yu that have been there for over, you know, for a 100 years. And when you think about how the passage of time and just what people consider home and how people, you know, make something their own and then changing that around. And I, I love that you know, we get immediately the kind of the comparison. Aang is flying some other colonists on APA and they are even saying like, look, these our colony was young, doesn't have any issues with being relocated. But like these other ones that are older, it's going to be harder for them because, you know, it's it would be the same kind of deal if I mean, 100
1: years ago, I don't think uh, Hawaii was part of America yet. Yeah, so I'm sure that was like, you know, different scenario than versus today where, you know, they probably feel more like a part of America, but you go back to uh, 1919 and you're trying to colonize them. Um, Be a little different story.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. And it just like what happens when, you know, somebody can sign and say, Hey, by the way, you are actually, you're back with us now. Be like, wait, no, we have this identity that we have kind of crafted now and we have made it our own space. Like, yeah, we have this history, but, this is what we have known and called home and especially in the case of Yu Dao, it has been this colony that has seen both firebenders and earthbenders working together now to create something new and very unique. Um, and it's great because we see this we see this very very early on in the story and it sets up the conflict in the narrative in such a great way. Um, it is just immediately putting it there that this is not your typical, like kind of, you know, episode of the week, uh, you know, type of jaunt that we would see in a lot of Avatar episodes. They're like, look, we are dealing with a complex aftermath from the Hundred Years War. And this is something with colonization that we as like readers, we know about through our own world history and through our own shared history. And it's taking all of those kind of thoughts in and really making this story and making the world of Avatar even more real uh, as it goes forward, which they are just so good at doing.
1: <laughs> yeah, totally. And this comic, it's definitely heavier subject matter than most Avatar. I mean, you know, you had genocide and the show, but um, I don't think we ever got into the nitty gritty of like the fact the colonies are on Earth Nation land, but now you got these families within these colonies that are um, you know, both Fire Nation and Earth Kingdom people. And again, kind of jumping ahead here, but I thought Yu Dao was going to be revealed to be Republic City. Yeah. I remember thinking that, <laughs> uh, reading the promise. But then when I was reading all the comics these past couple of weeks, I saw, oh, no, that's that's wrong. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, no, and it's it, I was I was also thinking the same thing. Because, I, I mean, this was coming out as Korra was coming out. And it's really cool because, you know, we were seeing the issues play out in Korra, that, you know, we're seeing this kind of multicultural land, the United Republic of Nations. And, you know, that's where we're like, oh, so this is where this, this is heading. And it's kind of cool because we see, because of Korra, we see kind of like the future of where a lot of like these comics are heading, but like it still doesn't make the, the story itself any less compelling. And it's just so interesting to see the way that they go about that. Um, But, you know, connecting again, the threads for what we see, obviously in Korra, we see all like kind of bunch of metal benders in the world. And this is the humble beginnings of Toph sharing metal bending with the world and with her metal bending school, which I I thought was just it's such a great comic relief, like secondary story to this, because, again, you have this, you know, Yudau, you know, colony storyline that is so heavy and it's great but it's like you so much of what avatar does so well is just balancing those heavier moments with great comedic relief and the metal bending school storyline is just that
1: (laughs) and i love her students they're they're pretty funny um you know i think of all the moments in this comic uh, the tops metal bending school scenes they feel the most like avatar y to me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, with with the um, humor that goes with them. Um I like the dark one the best. He's he's my favorite. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. It, it's it's great too, because in like the liner notes um in the library edition, Jean Luen Yang also talks about, you know, the challenge of writing the characters in their specific voices. And he talks about how Toph was hands down the easiest one to write because her voice was so well defined, and you just it comes across so well. Toph, in the way that she interacts with her students, in the way that she you know still continues to talk with Sokka and uh, Aang and Katara, it just it doesn't feel like anything has changed. Obviously, she has evolved a little bit as a person, but like you can tell, there's a great line at one point where it's like. Sokka's like I can't believe you're uh you've got like an earthbending or metalbending school, just like you as a teacher and it, and she's like oh, da no, da no. and it's like well let's just face it you just like telling people what to do. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, um, you know I wasn't expecting um, again I'm jumping in it's because I read all of them in one go I got hooked when I was reading The Promise but I really wasn't expecting like them to go so in depth with Toph um. In the rift, yeah, and I feel like they set up a lot of that and the promise. And, um, you know, you can definitely see kind of shades of Lin and um, Sue Yin in her, which I mm. thought was kind of neat,
0: yeah, absolutely. And it's so cool to kind of know again, we have that context of cora and having the kind of the future and seeing where you know, their children kind of stem from in that way. And it's it's so cool to see that That was such a great point, too. Um, but I don't know, just like Toph as an instructor, it was great, because, you know, I mean, so like one of the best episodes from especially like early season or book two uh, was uh, bitter work. Um, because, you know, that's the episode you have Zuko and Iroh. Iroh talking about the four nations in the sand. And then you have Aang learning earthbending and he him just struggling with it. And Toph's just method of teaching him was just like, you need to meet this boulder head on. Like, stop, like, kind of, like, <laughs> dancing <good>. around it. <laughs> <laughs> um. So it's cool to kind of see her, you know, realize, like, hey, I did this for the Avatar You know, this is something that's incredibly unique, and I want to be able to share this with the world. Um, And yeah, I I love the students. Uh, They talk about in the notes as well about how they wanted the students to represent, like, different forms of vice. Penga was based on greed. Um, The dark one, uh, preoccupation with death. And Hotan uh, was with fear. So I thought it was so cool that they kind of had these, like, very uh, archetypical... Uh, characters to kind of represent her students in that way and they just leaned into them heavily with that and just you know it's it's fun and like you said it does feel so quintessential avatar because they just have these (laughs) just one-liners that are like just standing out in such a fun way um so we're gonna basically we're gonna keep moving on through this first kind of chapter, and then once we get through book two, we're gonna start talking more about uh, these stories more kind of in greater chunks. But as the first chapter kind of continues, uh, we see Aang consulting with Roku, and we quickly see that Roku becomes a central figure in this story because of his unique perspective and connection to this issue again, it is because of Roku's indecisiveness to not deal with Sozin that the Hundred Year War happened, that the colonies really kind of went forward. I mean, so many of Sozin's earlier moves were making these Fire Nation colonies, and Roku didn't really step up in the way that he should have to, like, to stop him. So, so much of Roku's perception of what ang should do when ang is asking for advice is again you need to be decisive you need to be able to make sure that you don't make the same mistakes that i do um but at the same time we see that that's in such deep conflict with ang's own uh deep-seated values as we did in the finale of avatar because ang was like "Ah, okay you're telling me to be decisive it's like i can't kill ozai like what am i going to do here um, and it just, it, it felt very similar to the time where he was asking for advice in the avatar finale. And, you know, he's just trying to figure out what to do. He has this knowledge with the past, with the past lives, but at the same time, he quickly is understanding that that makes things more complex and sometimes not entirely helpful.
1: <laughs> yeah. Roku, Roku, I mean, all the avatars, really. I, I don't think they ever tell Aang what he wants to hear. And I don't know what Aang's expecting. Because uh, I feel like, um, you know, Aang, he's grown uh, through the past year, year and a half, I guess, at, at the at this point of the comic. Um, but all the other avatars, they're adults. They've dealt with probably more complex issues than Aang has, at least in terms of quantity. And, you know, as, as you get older, you become kind of numb to certain things. And I think uh, that's a good point with Roku is um, it's easy for him to say, Hey, be decisive uh, because he's, he's lived a long life and he's seen um, someone who used to be his closest friend uh, decay as a person over an entire lifetime. And you know I think Aang's always wanted to hear him say well you know Aang there's there's another way cause you know you're an airbender and that's what you want to hear uh, but you know Roku he is um, he's Obi-Wan like like we said <laughs> <laughs> back then and uh, he's not always gonna tell you what you want to hear and I think that kind of um, culminates in Aang just saying well you know screw it then I'm just gonna not talk to you anymore
0: yeah yeah <laughs> Um, so, you know, obviously, um, Aang has this moment of consultation, but then it's just quickly him and Katara, they go to, um, Yu Dao. And this is kind of after Zuko has made the decision to, you know, kind of withdraw from the Harmony Restoration Movement, um, realizing that he sees Yu Dao as his people, that he wants to... Defend them, and he wants to be there for them. And um, that first fight is uh, really great because Aang and Katara go in there, and they talk about it in the notes about the challenge that came with illustrating water bending. It's something that in animation is so clear, and they did such a beautiful job with it in the series. That how do you capture that flowing energy to water bending um, in a comic book form? And I just thought it was so interesting with the choices that they did and, uh, with kind of like incorporating, again, the forms that Katara practices, but then the different water shapes, how it's moving about and like in uh, it's basically complementing those forms that she's doing. So, again, it was keeping to that deep martial arts tradition, but now it's adapting it for a comic book form and. Um, and of course we have this like wonderful back and forth between Hang and Katara and it's like it's it's so adorable because you know they have been so focused on like the war and just defeating the fire lord learning the elements that you know they were having this relationship that had to be put on hold but now it's like now they have that time and it's they're trying to grow this relationship in the midst of this burgeoning conflict and kind of like what you know the the challenges that comes with that because every relationship is a challenge it's work and you know they are kind of like feeling these things out as they're dealing with like fighting firebenders again
1: (laughs) yeah definitely and you know that's such an interesting point i wasn't even thinking about that uh when i was reading through this but you know transitioning from animating bending to just drawing bending that's two different Worlds basically of trying to convey this idea of bending, and I think they did just such a stellar job in this comic because I never once questioned, Oh, well, that doesn't look like water bending, like you know, <laughs> it looked like water bending, looked like fire bending, looked like air bending. Um, I was completely sold on the presentation, especially of the characters and and their voices, you know, as I read through these, I could hear the voices in my (laughs) head as crazy as that sounds. No, it was the same Uh, way
0: there, there were certain lines in there that are just like, and, and actually it's like in this scene, as they, um yeah we'll kind of get back to like what precedes this but there's this great moment after Aang comes out of the avatar state like zuko is saying like look we should both calm down and talk about this and Aang just looks at him in this like flabbergasted moment and he's just like that's what I was trying to say the whole time. And like the way that they drew his expression and like the, like the artistic accents, like to the side of him and the colored background, it was, it felt like one of Ang's like little outbursts that he would have whenever he got frustrated in the series. And I read that in his voice so clearly.
1: (laughs) Hey, Sam, that's like the exact moment I was thinking about when I said I could hear their voices. (laughs) Just so perfect.
0: Yeah. Um, But in that scene, it's really interesting because, again, we have this kind of uh, reflection back to, you know, what was uh, happened a lot in the original series Um, Aang goes into the Avatar state and he's being carried away. And he has this moment where he's like, maybe Roku was right. Maybe I should keep this promise. And Katara steps in and very and very much in the same way that she has done multiple times across the series. All the way back to the Southern Air Temple, to when they were in the desert, where Aang was about to let the Avatar state kind of take over him. And I thought it was such a great choice because at the end of Avatar, when Aang has that beautiful moment where he quells the fires with that huge tidal wave um, after his fight with Ozai, it's like, wow, he is really mastered going in and out of the Avatar state. But I think that it's so great to say like no he's still a kid and he is still not a perfect avatar and he was kind of letting that emotion run high into him going into the avatar state and kind of you know letting that flow through him and I love that Katara came in and was like no you need to stop that you need to be in a clear right head to be able to do this.
1: Yeah and I think you know, in this world, most people probably thought, "Well, this kid saved the world, so obviously, he's grown up. He's mature now. Um, he's he's no longer a kid." And I was kind of guilty of thinking that too when the series ended. But it was uh, it was nice to see that in this comic, he's still the Aang we know throughout the whole show. He still hasn't quite uh, finished his uh, you know quest to become a man, <laughs> and um, you know, it's just it. I really appreciate this comic for just being so realistic and and true to the characters and, you know, what would happen um, after this hundred year war ended. Yeah. And, you know, it's definitely not um, a situation where Aang can just go around and say, hey, I'm the Avatar, chill out. (laughs) he's gonna he's still gonna get mad he's he's gonna get upset he's still gonna go into that angry avatar state it's just a good thing he has guitar to keep his um keep his back
0: yeah absolutely and i mean it's it's one of those things where it just it really is this beautiful illustration of like the importance that they have for their relationship together because they do balance each other so well that you know uh when Aang does have those moments, Katara is always there to offer a different perspective to kind of be his closest confidant. And it's great because we see that now with an added layer of them officially in a relationship and kind of, you know, building that trust and communication that has, you know, building it on top of what they have already established through their journeys that they've experienced in the original series. And I just, I loved it. Um, and you know, as uh, chapter one kind of concludes, we get to see more of Yu Dao. Um, we see the mixed families and cultures as something like new and unique. We have, you know, obviously it's just, it is a whole new type of world. And that's what is really at the core of this story is like now we are entering this new age and this is very much part of the reality. You have these, nations kind of like living together in these, you know, new cities. And, you know, it's a product of something that was initially met with evil intentions, but they have made something positive and productive with it. Um, And of course, the chapter concludes with Zuko meeting with Ozai and what a great cliffhanger for, especially when like the first one came out. Cause I remember I got that too. And I was like, Oh my gosh, where is this going? I can't believe Zuko is talking to Ozai. It's insane.
1: Yeah. And you know, I think didn't they guy, I just read the comic, but didn't they kind of do what they did with that final scene in the beginning of the promise. They kind of expanded on that Zuko and Ozai interaction. Um, where he asks where his mom is.
0: Yeah, so they have that as kind of like a flashback. Um, because as, you know, Aang and Zuko and Katara are in Yu Dao and Zuko is just kind of reminded of this, you know, this moment. Um and it's it's also it's like talking about how um one of the citizens there is just like talking in talking about Ozai, and he has that moment of just being like That flashback to when he immediately talked to him afterwards. And that's what leads him to understand, like, this is where I need to go. Which is just, it's an interesting path for him to go down. Because again, it's like, he, Ozai is the only one who has been Fire Lord. He's the only one who knows what it is like. And even though he was this horrible person, Aang did spare him. He is still alive. And he still is his father, even though he does not agree with him on so many levels. So it's like, how do you kind of turn your back on that when your back is against the wall? Um, which leads us into chapter two. Um, and uh, again, so we're going to first talk about the metal bending school secondary storyline. Um, and then uh, we'll kind of move on to Ang and Katara in um, their journeys to Bossing Say, Uh And then we'll be talking about Zuko and Ozai. So, first with his metal bending school storyline, again, just so great. It feels like such quintessential avatar. It is such a fun story, and it's so cool to see Toff's beginnings of sharing metal bending with other people and how it is met with so much <laughs> or so little success.
1: <laughs> yeah, and it's hard to believe that somehow this, like, Evolves into this like strong metal bending police force, but I think that makes it all the more interesting to kind of follow the story thread and see where it goes. And of course, Sokka's there to help because Sokka's the man, Sokka's always getting them ladies. Where he <laughs> he's a motivational
0: bender, <laughs> motivational
1: bender. Oh, I love that line. Um, you know, kind of jumping off topic here, but I thought it was weird with the amount of care, um you know they give these characters in these comics and all the comics that you know we flash forward to Korra and even though you know we get a Sokka flashback and some mentions of Sokka here and there um we never really find out like what exactly happened to Sokka like if he even had kids Mm. and I just think that's so weird And I hope that you know the new comic kind of delves into more Sokka stuff
0: yeah, I, I hope so, too. And it's interesting because it is kind of part of this timeline and part of the history that we we know so little about. And we've only seen just like just brief flashes of it in Korra. And, it, you know, again, we got to see um, Toph and Katara in Korra and we get to see the memories of Aang and the impact that he had and we get to see Zuko. But like Sokka is again the uh, Missing from a lot of that, but it's nice because we get to see some great soccer stuff in these comics, and it's kind of continuing that tradition. But I, I'm right there with you. Um, so you know, with the school, we have like tough students that are unable to bend, um, they are you know just <laughs> struggling, and it's great because they bring in the main story conflict and spill it over with like the consequences of um, you know, the fire nation kind of saying you Dao is with the fire nation. And we have uh, um, Master Kunio
1: come in with his students and have, like, taken over the school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I thought it was uh, cool that, you know, a lot of these characters, I thought they'd just be kind of one note, one off as I was reading through all these comics. But, you know, all these comics, they're one big story because uh, I think Kunio, like, even comes back in a, in a later series and um, I liked his uh, his little hat that Toff made for him.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they actually said um, they based his uh, character design off of uh, James Hong. Uh, and, like, one of his characters, uh, I think, especially from, like, uh, I don't know if it was, like, Big Trouble in Little China or, like, one of the other ones, but, like, he was, like, one of the biggest influences. And then when I went back and started listening, like, to or uh, reading that in James Hong's voice, like that character became even funnier. Um, and he was, uh, he was the actor who played, um, he was the, uh, I th- hold on, I, cause I want to make sure I get this right. I believe that he was the uncle in, uh, Jackie Chan Adventures.
1: Oh, okay. I know that voice. <laughs>
0: um, he also played, uh, he played, um, Poe's father in, uh, Oh, gosh. Um, Kung Fu Panda.
1: Let's see. Would he, would he be the mayor from that Kiyoshi episode?
0: Yes. Yes. He was Mayor Tong in Avatar Day.
1: I know uh, voices.
0: <laughs> yep. And then he was also uh, one of the uh, headmasters Uh, One of the head like airbending monks uh, we saw in the flashback of the storm. Uh, OK, yeah. So, I mean, it's just great. I love like kind of imagining that voice like paired with that. But it's great. Again, we get to see how that main storyline is coming into effect now. It's just like, hey, this this school used to belong to us. We own the rights of it. And then it's just like, okay, let's have a showdown. And they're like, oh, okay, we'll see how this goes. And then they, like, leave. Like, the students do that elaborate, like, kunyo salute. And, like, all the, like, top students are like, oh, my God, we're going to get wrecked by these guys.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and, uh, you know, they really keep you on the edge of the seat whether or not her students are going to learn metal bending. Because they (laughs) definitely don't make a that much progress at all
0: yeah <laughs> and it's great because you know we get to see sokka like helping out and being like okay how are we gonna like get them to metal bend? and he tries out all these different things he tries surprising them i love the idea of like when they're camping out and he tries to do the spooky story of like well you know that there's this beer spirit and then like toff shows up in this incredible like metal boar like suit of armor like <laughs> to a try to scare <laughs> And then, and then Sokka's just like, now, bend metal. And he just throws the coins at them and it just like hits them. Like that felt so like Sokka and so Avatar from the series. Like just for him to be like, yeah, this is going to work. It's like, no, it's not going to work. <laughs> Hey everyone, this is Colin. I uh, just wanted to say thank you for listening to the 12th episode of The Legend of Portalcast. Um, I know this is a little bit of a longer episode. Uh, we kind of went a little long in our discussion, but it was because we wanted to tap into everything that the promise had to offer. So I think in our future episodes, uh, we're actually going to be breaking the comics down into three parts uh, as they are usually presented and written. Um, but thank you so much as you listen through this. Uh, we had so much fun talking about this, and hope you're enjoying it. Uh, remember, you can find us on uh, Facebook with Legend of Portalcast, Twitter Portalcast Pod, and on Instagram at Legend of Portalcast. I just wanted to take this time to do a quick shout out to the League of Main Podcasters. Uh, they have been incredibly helpful in terms of leaving reviews, uh, giving valuable feedback. And uh, pointing us in the direction of some great audio editing tutorials. And uh, without them, I wouldn't be able to get this really great sound uh, that we've been able to get so far. So a big thanks to them. And a big thanks to you guys for listening. And uh, we'll see you in two weeks. Thanks. Bye. Um, But, you know... What's really great about this story, and you know, we get to see some great character growth for Toph, is that we see her uncertainty as being a metal bending instructor. Obviously, they all these different methods that she's tried um, are just not working out, and Gene um, Lu and Yang talks about how. Uh, these this conversation that she's having with Sokka at night at the school about how she has been pushing them so hard without any kind of like positive feedback, which again we saw in Bitter Work with Toph, where she's just just like, you know, we even saw that directly with Katara. She's like, when I'm teaching Aang waterbending, I'd like to throw in a little like positive feedback and everything. And Toph's like, yeah, I'll try that out. Thanks,
1: Katara. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, uh, you know, with Toph being uncertain, um, you know, I notice when she gets uncertain, that means she's about to, like, develop as a character because uh, when you're just on that standard, like, beat line of Toph, <laughs> um, you know, she's just being Toff, But. Uh, when she gets out of her comfort zone and kinda gets pushed up against a wall, you know, you get things like her learning how to metal bin.
0: Yeah, absolutely so true um, and Jean Lu and yang talks about uh, one of the influences for this scene um, and kind of Toff's Arc in this story uh, was uh, right around when the tiger mother controversy was kind of going on it's this idea of like tiger parenting which it's parenting with high expectations and little positive feedback was viewed as superior to the usual Western Parringtons Parrington style. And it was kind of like this idea of like East Asian like or Asian like families being like, you know, super hard on their kids and like, hey, that's how you get them to succeed, instead of, you know, just showering them in positive feedback. And it led to all kinds of debate and, you know, people saying like, well, there's pros and cons for it, but, you know, it's And Jean Luen Yang says it's like, you know, Toph is a tiger coach and that's who she is. And I mean, like that was how she trained Ang. So why would she do anything differently with, you know, with like her students, if she's trying to kind of like teach these principles. But I think it's great because even though she is adopting these same kind of teaching techniques, it's not the same because there's more nuance to metal bending. And I think that that's just how it really kind of, leads to this great development
1: yeah and to add to that it almost feels like how she trains you know ang and her students is kind of reflective of how her parents treated her where they expected her to be this prim and proper lady and they were rarely ever you know positive or supportive to her you know to the point where she ran away uh due to that lifestyle and I just think that's kind of interesting that that kind of seeped over into how she conducts herself with her students.
0: Mm, yeah. And then it's great because the students overhear that. And what brings them back is, you know, they're like, you believed in us. You thought that we were like metal benders or, or people that could like, you know, do this. And it, it, it just that's what kind of brings them back and helps them understand how metal bending works. And, you know, it's it's interesting because every everyone kind of like gets to that in a different place. For Toph, she was backed up against a wall. She had nothing else and she just had to try to do something. But in the same way, she believed in herself that she could do it. And she was able to bend herself out of that metal box. And um it's it just great to see the those characters kind of find that in them. Um and it's great because Jean uh, Luen Yang talks about how Master Kuno, when this kind of showdown happens between the schools, he represents this kind of face of colonial aggression. Um, he says that when you're talking about prefacing the conversation of colonialism with the colonizers basically deserving to get their butts kicked and how master Kuno is that proverbial butt) <laughs> and <laughs> and you know it's just like it's it's great because you know he going in he's going in he like burned like the Earth Kingdom or the uh, the Beifong family flag and he was just like no this is our school and like he's totally being a jerk and you know you kind of get that satisfaction when like the students come in they start metal bending and they just don't know what to do and they are just like completely rocked by these and they're just bending little coins at them <laughs>
1: those coins packed a punch though.
0: Yes. Yes. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was just, it was such a great little story and it kind of gave that like catharsis for that colonial kind of fight back. Um, because you know, the promise, the main storyline has so many different layers to it that, you know, it's not going to just be kind of a, you know, from the beginning, it's not just going to be neatly tied up in a ribbon with how it's resolved. (laughs) Um, which leads us to kind of the next section, talking about Aang and Katara and their journey to bossing Sei to talk to Earth King Kuei and be like, hey, look, we need you to talk to Zuko about this. This is way more complex than we thought it was. Um, and I love that when they get there, we see the Avatar Aang fan club um, and we get to see a little bit of Katara's jealousy uh, kind of flare up again. It's very quintessential Katara too. Um, and But Aang feeling touched by this homage to his culture um and the fact that you know it's not executed in the best way i love when they go out to that house and it's just like oh so this is supposed to be the western air temple it's like yeah she made it so it looked like it was upside down
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah and then you get that um, um that guitar going. Ooh, when Aang's all like yeah you know it's nice to feel like i was back home because you know she's being so jealous and and mean about it and then she realizes you know ang wasn't trying to be a pimp he was just trying to be back home <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah absolutely but there is that great uh like panel in the beginning when they get there when uh ang is like talking about like oh this is my girlfriend katara um and the the one character is just like oh it is an honor to meet the avatar's first girlfriend. And then it's just like Katara's like first girlfriend. What do you mean? And then it just goes to this panel where she just has this, like this biggest, like shit eating grin on her face. Like, Oh girl, I'm coming for him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was great. Um, and, uh, you know, and again, uh, they also talk about how this is kind of also the beginnings of the air acolytes, um, which are, you know, this kind of, you know, group of people that we are introduced to in Legend of Korra and it's kind of tying in it's like okay where does that come from obviously there are people who are seeing Aang as this like you know legendary figure but then it's just like oh he's coming from this culture that has basically disappeared off the face of the earth and you know, people being like, okay, so what is this all about? And it kind of seems natural that people would do that. He saved the world. He came from this, like, you know, nation that believed in, uh, you know, peace and nomadic culture and everything. So, it's like, it makes sense. Um But after this kind of little jaunt that they have, they go to Earth King Quay. And um it's really interesting because... Suddenly, the Earth King is in this really, really interesting position from a product of where he was at at the end of book two. Because we see him played as a puppet by Long Fang. He basically was used as kind of a figurehead, and he didn't actually get to make any of these, you know, decisions. And he had to live with that reality. He lost the kingdom to the fire nation while he was King and what that makes him feel like. And, you know, he has this desire now to be an active part of policy and decision making. But, you know, we quickly see that he is just like overcompensating and feels like he needs to like meet this decision with force. Like it's this idea of like, well, I was, I was weak then, but now I must be, I must be strong. And this idea of like, trying to be something that you weren't for so long gets in the way of just seeing a situation for what it is.
1: I definitely thought this was one of the um, most interesting parts of the comic because the way they present the earth King and the show, he just seemed like this happy go lucky guy who, you know, even though he finds out he's getting duped, he still has a smile on his face about it. And he's just like, ah, you know, whatever. I'm just going to hang out with my bear. And then, you know, he ends up getting duped by Azula as well. And, you know, I I don't think I ever expected for him to, you know, mobilize his army and actually go to war, and so it was just really interesting seeing him actually do something like that. And I do think it's quite realistic. Um, you got this man who, you know, is a king and he's never really done anything for his country in, in that sense. He's always just been kind of a figurehead, just sitting in this high palace in a big city and really it's kind of the generals of the earth kingdom or the kings out there like king boomy um that have been kind of fighting this war and i feel like um earth king quay here uh felt like he hadn't been doing his part and so to kind of uh make up for that he feels like he needs to finally get involved with what's going on out there mm-hmm
0: Um, so, you know, and again, all of these stories are kind of interwoven, um, and it's just a beautiful way with the way they kind of take these different elements as the tension is rising, as all of these kind of character moments are progressing. And one of the most, just the coolest part of like this one too, is we get to see Zuko and Ozai and it is, it is such a great collection of scenes because there's so much, happening there that is a reflection of the previous series, because we are suddenly seeing Zuko back in this prison room, and we are immediately taken to when he was talking to Iroh. And it's just amazing, because now he is this new person. And back then he was trying to find out like who he should be, what he should be. And Iroh was kind of giving him that guidance. And now Zuko knows who he should be. But he's now unsure of how to deal with it, and now he goes to Ozai. And I don't know. Just what what did you think about the fact that they decided to kind of bring Ozai in in such a big way with this story?
1: I never would have seen that coming. I did not think you know Zuko would ever go to Ozai to have tea with him. Um, I thought he. Like, my head headcanon when the show ended was, you know, he went to go see Ozai about his mom. Maybe he got his answer. Maybe he didn't. But that was the last time I ever talked to Ozai. And I thought it was an interesting choice of, uh, you know, story flow to have him kind of seek out this evil uncle. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, it's not like Ozai really gave him bad advice. Uh, he kind of gave him good advice if he asked me. Um, you know, he told him, You're the Fire Lord. You, you gotta be the Fire Lord. You can't just pretend to be the Fire Lord. Yeah.
0: And it's great because, you know, it's, we see, um, and, and it's just like, it's, what, what I do love about Ozai is that, you know, sometimes it can seem like with villains and shows, they can be very one dimensional. But like, there is this kind of grandioseness and, like poetry to the way Ozai I think sees the world. And one of the biggest moments we see that in the series is like when he is delivering that monologue as the Phoenix King. And when he's talking about like how he is going to burn the world, it just like, it is this like it's evil grandstanding, but like it also felt very poetic in this way that he was kind of delivering it very theatrical. And When he brings this story in about Zuko saving the turtle crab, it's just, he brings in this story with a powerful meaning, but then he throws in these digs that he knows will just kind of like get under Zuko's skin. And it's that like subtle manipulation that we have always seen from Azula. We know where she got that from. And he just throws in those little moments of saying, even then you possessed an odd affinity for the weak. And it's just like, you know, that that is just like getting on Zuko's nerves, like a little statement like that, because you know Zuko is just like,
1: ah. Oh. <laughs> yeah, Ozai is not a nice guy by any means. <laughs> but it's like I was saying earlier, it makes me wonder what exactly happened to Ozai from him to go from happy baby <laughs> to, you know, dick dad, basically. And, um, you know, it's all—it's almost like either Azulon had to have done something or um, it was kind of a reverse Zuko-Azula situation with him and Iroh, where Iroh was the Zuko and Ozai was the Azula mm. uh, to Azulon's Ozai, if that makes any sense. <laughs> um, but, you know, like Iroh, since he's the firstborn, you know, he... He gets the fire nation, okay? And even though Ozai, who might be the better bender, um, and maybe the better leader, too, um, is just kind of not a given a fair chance, I guess. And so then, you know, of course, Ozai does what any reasonable person would do and conspire with his wife to uh, poison his dad. <laughs> the, yes, very the nation. <laughs> but, um, you know, I definitely think... Uh, Ozai kind of saw himself in Azula and that's kind of why he rubbed off on her a certain way yeah for sure
0: um and it's great because you know again we are seeing these stories kind of woven in and out of each other and when Zuko comes back he has this kind of like analysis and he's saying he's just like I have been thinking about like that story all night and trying to decipher its meaning. And that is so telling just in that single moment where he says that, where, you know, that Zuko has just been like up all night trying to figure out like what, why would his father share this story? And he says that, you know, my sleeplessness and everything is from being able to choose sides with this, you know, kind of situation. And, Excuse me. Uh, The way that Ozai responds, it's just, he is like, you're playing right into my hand. And Ozai's counter-analysis of being like, you know, you are the Fire Lord. What you choose by definition is right. And he is basically, before he even says that, he's just like, you know, you are right, but you're not at the same time. And it's just like, he knows he just, this is also like Ozai kind of reaching for power again because he no longer has his bending and he wants to be able to still kind of make that impact. And he wants to hurt Zuko because of like what he has done to him. And, you know, he's sharing this information obviously, but he's like, you know, it comes with a cost. And I, I, I just love that Ozai's character is still kind of coming through with this, and how much it affects Zuko. Um, but as you said, yeah, he does give him pretty solid advice when he says, like, "Look, you are the Fire Lord, and you know you have to decide. You have to be decisive with all of this." And he sees the upcoming conflict with the Earth King, knowing how it'll play out. It's a testament to, you know, his military prowess. Being like, "Look." You know, you think that, you know, after being, like, a puppet for so long that this Earth King is actually going to just, like, roll over and let you do this? It's like, no. He's going to... He's absolutely going to, you know, try to do this. And he also says, he's like, I've heard rumors about this meeting of yours. Like, he's still getting information in prison on the inside about Zuko, like, having this meeting with everything, too. So it's like, he's tapped in still.
1: And, I mean, you know, it's it's interesting you bring that up because... I think it goes to show Ozai was actually a really good Fire Lord and we kind of see that reflected in how people view him like in the colonies. We're like, well, you know, Ozai would have never let this happen. Ozai wouldn't turn his back on his people or even, you know, a few comic books ahead in Smoke and Shadow, Sh- Smoke and Shadow, you get a good amount of that too uh, with the whole um, – Ozai Society, I think is what it's called, or New Ozai Society, something like that. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's, it's funny because he he called it. He said, you know, hey, you know, the Earth King's not just going to let you do this, you know. And, you know, the Earth King's assembling an army as he's having this conversation with Zuko. And I just think that was, um, it was interesting because... Ozai definitely knows how to do the job. And I think he saw this as kind of an opportunity to still be the Fire Lord mm, uh, by yeah. using Zuko as his proxy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, you know, thankfully, I think Zuko kind of saw through that because obviously he doesn't let Ozai hold the shots, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: But, you know, it's still like
0: those words are still hanging in like the back of his thoughts. And I think that that's also what Ozai is counting on. Um, Ozai just knows how to use his words to affect people. I mean, let's look back at like the day of Black Sun when Zuko confronts Ozai and he is in this kind of, and it's interesting because, you know, we are again in this kind of power dynamic again, where Zuko has the power for that moment. But even though Ozai is seemingly powerless, that doesn't stop him from like throwing out these you know, like kind of intimidating, you know, rebuffs and everything. I mean, in Day of Black Sun, he was just like, you know what your mother did. She did treasonous things. He's just, he knows how to kind of get under his skin and how to kind of direct the conversation. And I thought it was so telling with the way that this whole scene ends. That as Zuko is like trying to say, it's like, you do not realize who you're talking to. Like, I am the Fire Lord. And Ozai just cuts him off and says... Leave my presence.
1: Yeah, it's definitely um, interesting. I, I actually I didn't expect for that encountered in that way. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I think Ozai at the end of the day, he knew that he had something Zuko wanted, which is, you know, his knowledge of being Fire Lord. And so what that means to Ozai is I'm in charge here. I, I got all the power in the situation, buddy, even though I'm behind bars and I got my bending taken away from me. I still have something you want.
0: Yep. Absolutely.
1: Um, So, you know,
0: obviously Zuko leaves and then we get back to the throne room and it's this really poignant scene where he is, he summons the flames in front of him and then he just kind of dissipates them. He's like, this isn't me. And that's when May comes up and is like, look, you have been pushing me away. You have not been like sharing what's been going on. It's just like, I don't, I don't want to be with you if you're going to be doing this. And I thought it was so incredibly bold of a choice for them to do that and so refreshing because they could have easily just had May kind of be on his shoulder still and be like, hey, you know, come on, like, you know, still do this. I know you're kind of shutting me out, but like, I love you. No, that's not at all who May is. And May was just like, you're not going to talk to me? Then like, we're done. I'm not going to talk to you. This is like, this is not what I want out of life and i just respect the hell out of the fact that they just committed to that
1: yeah definitely and i know mako was a pretty popular ship by the end of avatars run on tv um so definitely very bold of them to break that up but also incredibly realistic uh you know zuko he keeps secrets and being in a relationship anything i've learned is Secrets are always bad. Yes. there should be no secrets. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely.
0: Um, and then it's really interesting. I it like re. I like I re. I reread this scene a couple times because, like, I just I had a feeling after it that it just it stood out to me in such a in such a way that um, Suki approaches um, approaches Zuko and she basically is like look like are you okay it's like i'm really worried about you and it wasn't just the fact that like it's that line but the way that they also um lettered it in the way that the comic was presented the word i'm is bolded and it's this like moment where suki is like showing genuine concern and i think on one hand like yeah it is suki like you know she is a great, like, heartwarming character and has, like, this, like, compassion and empathy, but, like, it kind of, like, was, especially right after May left, for a moment when I first read that, I was like, "Is like, so Suki got something for Zuko it's like what is going on here and I know that that may be looking like too into it but it just it just seemed I don't know
1: am I alone in that feeling or did you feel anything like that I don't think you're looking too into it because I remember when uh, this comic came out um, I think even in book one there was a little Suki Zuko moment that got people on this train of thought Uh, but especially when this came out I remember this scene being like posted online kind of like in meme format and um you know, I almost wanna say maybe Suki doesn't get with Sokka at the end of the day. Um maybe she sees Zuko as kind of more husband material than Sokka. Maybe Sokka's just the fun guy you date and Zuko's the man you marry <laughs> Um <laughs> But it, it's definitely odd. It's um, it, it was an interesting choice because you got to think, you know, they consciously decided to write this scene out and have Suki say, you know, I'm worried about you. And it almost makes me think, like, did I miss something from the show? Because, <laughs> um, you know, when Suki first met Zuko, you know, he was there burning down her village. And then um, I guess you know, they're in the boiling rock together is the next interaction they had. And then, you know, they had the Zuko field trips and then Phoenix King fun times. And then the show is <laughs> over. And Now we're in the promise. I just I don't see um, where this care would come from unless, you know, her just being in the Fire Nation as his personal guard and, and seeing him go through his daily life every day, you know, she might just start caring about him almost um, like he's family, maybe yeah. not so much romantic. Um, but this scene, it definitely did strike me as kind of more on the romantic side versus the, um, the family side. Yeah. So
0: I don't want to get too deep into that, but I'm glad I'm not alone in that. It just was like, it really struck out for me, but, um, or stuck out and that struck out. <laughs> um, so that brings us to chapter three. Um, and obviously tensions have been boiling. Um, we know that there is a conflict on the horizon and the opening of this chapter starts with this shared dream that Aang and Zuko both have. And in the liner notes, they talk about how uh, dreams and kind of visions like this have been used um, during very important parts and uh especially in very pivotal moments in the show and they how they wanted to use that for this um, to really kind of highlight where Aang and Zuko were at uh, mentally beforehand. Again, we have, you know, like these dreams that, you know, Aang had, uh, you know, with nightmares and daydreams, but also it's just like these visions of like of fear and upcoming conflict and like what that's going to mean. And it. It shows Aang fulfilling the promise. And they both kind of like wake up from this in like a cold sweat. And it's just this it's that feeling of like, holy crap, this might have to happen. And they both know that. And for Zuko, it's like, is he willing to kind of like die for his people, knowing full well that he would not be able to kind of, you know, stop Aang? And with Aang being like, is this going to truly be good for the world? But what am I going to lose uh, going into this? So they meet and uh, they go back to Yu Dao. And um, what's great is that before like the general conflict starts, um, they have this interesting scene with Aang meeting the Yu Dao chapter of the Avatar Aang fan club. And they approach him. They are you know, saying like, hey, we're so excited. And Ang's like, oh, cool. You even have like, you know, these tattoos. And they're like, oh, we actually like use the like archival ink that you used for those. And Ang has this moment where he's just like, that ink and everything that we had to do, that was part of our tradition. We had to earn that. And in uh, the kind of, I, I can't remember which part of uh, like kind of, avatar writing this has been in but um for airbenders to get their tattoos they have to uh, achieve what are known as the 36 tiers and they are basically these different tests and trials all culminating with the fact that they have to invent their own airbending move as the final testament of their mastery in order to get their tattoos and you know he sees these you know the avatar ang fan club with this and he's kind of shaken by it um and like offended uh and in the liner notes uh gene luen yang talks about uh there was an event at um ohio university in 2011 where stars uh students teaching about racism in society they created this internet poster campaign called we're a culture not a costume And he kind of talks about what's the difference between a costume that references a culture and one that's culturally offensive, who gets to decide where to draw the line. And then he says, shouldn't cosplay just be about fantasy and fun? So it's this kind of, you know, again, they're bringing in these like real world conversations and debates and problems to this world of Avatar and it kind of fits in very well. But I don't know. What what was your thought in terms of, like, Aang's reaction to that and with that scene?
1: You know, at first I was all, like, say what? But then, you know, I thought about it and it makes sense. Uh, especially because Aang, um, you know, he got his tattoos at quite an early age. I remember in the Storm flashback, he's the only kid with the tattoos. And I think a lot of people, when they're, kind of new um, viewers to the show, they assume that all the airbenders have tattoos and that there's not, you know, airbenders without the tattoos. And that's actually a sign of being an airbending master, which also means, you know, Aang himself was just a powerful bender. And of course the avatar, um, but you would think, you know, well, Aang, your nation's dead. Aren't you at least happy that people are pretending to be airbenders and they have these tattoos and, and whatnot? But I think it goes to show Aang's level of love for his society, for his lost society. And I think they even touch on that in Korra when. Zuko's talking about uh, what Aang would do if airbenders came back into the world uh, to Korra, saying, you know, oh, well, he'd be really happy. That was, like, his biggest life dream ever. And, um, you know, I thought it was interesting that they went there. And I do appreciate this comic um, for delving into uh, issues that aren't so easy like that. Because, you know, with, um, with the show, you don't get enough time to always go into stuff like this you got to kind of pick and choose where you want the story to go so you can meet your episode order uh but with this comic it's a great opportunity for them to explore these kind of issues that they just didn't have time for in the show and it almost you know it feels like lost episodes and i remember reading this you know i was like man i just wish this was you know animated but it's still quite enjoyable in comic form
0: yeah absolutely um so you know after this kind of moment that he has with the udow chapter we see the freedom fighters at the gate um of course they have been part of this story um throughout we see smeller B, uh and long shot and sneers and there's like this great running joke with like they're they're talking about um sneers and uh this is the other name I forgot to look up here. Hold on one second. Corey. Um, Corey. Yeah. So there's this running, this great running gag with like uh, Corey and Sneers. And they're like talking about like, they're like, oh, they're like, Sneers, you're dating Corey? And they're just like, well, what? He's They're just like, that's great. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and actually they talk about it in the notes too. They're like, yeah, like Sneers, like they're like, when sneers was in the uh, uh in the jet episode it was just like it was really kind of unclear as to like like who sneers was and like what like exactly was like was sneers actually like a man or a woman and they're like so we talked to Mike and Brian and it's like no sneers is like a he's he's a boy a man and it's just like so we were like you know we should have a relationship kind of tie into this <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah i i really appreciate them giving sneers more development cuz he, yeah, I think he wasn't even in the Bossing ba- Say episode where the Freedom Fighters kind of come back into it. Um Yeah. Yeah, I, was he even was he in Day of Black Sun? I forget.
0: Uh no, I don't think so. Um because you know, they were they were kind of also like talking about how um you know, the they basically say in the notes like Sneer's basically like left the Freedom Fighters and you know, this is where he went. Like he was kind of outside of here, but then like when the like whole thing with Bossing say kind of circled back around. That was when he connected again, you know, with Smellerby and Longshot once they kind of came out. But you know,
1: it just and then, uh, then he met Corey on not Tinder, but Binder.
0: <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> Um, so this scene, uh, at the gate, it's great. Cause I, you know, we also, we get to see the resourcefulness of the freedom fighters because they're like throwing this battering ram and then like, Ang is like trying to stop it. And smeller B is just like, Oh, well good. I'm glad that you did that because you know, clearly we aren't going to actually try to batter down this door. And it's just like saying like, we're in a world of technology now. And they came out with this like little mini drill to like carve through the wall. And I just thought it was such a nice taste to show that like, you know, even though the freedom fighters aren't benders, like what they lack in bending, they make up for in resourcefulness.
1: Definitely. And you know, the drill kind of gave me flashbacks to the drill from uh, season two.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And actually they said in the notes too, that they based a lot of the design as just kind of like a smaller version of the drill, uh, from that episode. Um, and then uh, as we are kind of getting closer to the final battle, um, we see Toph, Suki and Sokka um, kind of reunited again, which was so cool because, you know, that the the scene of the three of them together, the scenes of the three of them together in the end of the Avatar finale are just so incredible. So many great action packed moments and just like yes, like awesome team fighting and to uh, see them teaming up again was so satisfying and uh, you know, kind of having to problem solve and being like, okay, how are we going to do this? And be like, okay, bring us underneath the tank. Uh, Alright, how are we going to disable the tanks? And it was just so cool to see them in that element again just as they were uh, at the end of uh, the original series.
1: Yeah, I, I like this team up, Toph, Suki, and Saga. It's not a team up I would have expected um, you know, before season's comic came out, but now I'm always kind of hoping these three team up because uh, it's always um it's always fun to see kind of the banner between these three characters.
0: Absolutely. Um, so that brings us to the battle, um, and there is this beautiful two-page panel um, where it is just this full spread as the battle is about to begin, and. Uh, there was a great liner note that I had to share with this. And Gene uh, Luen Yang uh, says, I came across these Japanese battle prints from the 1800s. They were beautiful and intricate. They played loose with the rules of perspective, but they gave the viewer a feeling of the battlefield. All these little conflicts added up to a massive one. So he approached Guru Hero, the illustrator, and was like, can, like, here's what I'm thinking for inspiration. Can you do it? And he delivers. And like this whole spread it really does look like some of those like old prints of battles and everything it's incredible
1: that's definitely true man i need to get these library (laughs) editions (laughs) because it sounds like you know um they they have them for the rest of the books too right like it sounds like there's a lot of good trivia bits in it um it's kind of like
0: director's commentary for like for the books themselves it's 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 really sweet (laughs)
1: Yeah, like um, I definitely like the art style in uh, this comic, especially like kind of rewinding here, going back to that dream um, Zuko and Aang shared, just that that art for that battle scene uh, it was really impressive to me. Um, I was like, man, I wish I could draw like this. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. Um, so the battle kind of begins, we get some great action scenes really showing off like they're just their chops for uh, showing bending and battles in action. Um, and Aang hops in and goes back into the Avatar state again. And again, Katara swoops in and takes him away before he can do something rash. And kind of leading up to this moment, we have seen Katara several times, like trying to get through to Aang and talking to him about like, look, there's something I want to talk to you about, but there's never really a right time. And then she just like swoops in. and is like, look, I am making the time right now. We're going to talk about this. And she shares her perspective of kind of this whole development. And she says how she has changed her mind about the harmony restoration movement. And she's like, look, I see these families here, and then I also see our family because we are a mixed nation family. And, like, just seeing that kind of future and everything was, and just having Katara share that perspective, I think was so powerful. And again, it's a testament to their relationship and the role and the importance that she has in terms of grounding Aang when he gets kind of swept away uh, very emotionally with these things.
1: That moment definitely blew me away. For me personally, uh, when you see kind of the flash forward of them uh, being a family, to me that's the climax of this particular story, um, the promise. And you know, it's kind of interesting because Aang was sort of blind to this. This kind of this fact was in front of him the whole time that you know he's a air nomad, she's from the water tribe. And, you know, if they're in a relationship, I mean, by definition, you know, they're a mixed relationship and eventually going to be a mixed nation family. And it's almost like being the Avatar um, kind of blinded him. Like, let's say, you know, Roku not being able to kind of see through uh, Sozin's, you know, ways of wanting to... uh, go to war and take over the world. You know, if Roku was speak no evil, then Aang might be see no evil or it might be the other way around. Maybe Roku was see no evil Ang speak no evil. I just thought it was kind of interesting. It's kind of, I thought sort of a reflection of Roku's problem that he had to deal with in his time and his inability to deal with it and actually be decisive because I feel like if Aang had messed up this Yu Dao situation, it might've ended up escalating into another hundred year war.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. Um, and I think you're just spot on with saying that it really was kind of like the climax with this. And, um, uh, there, there was a really funny uh, note with that, like, f- uh, flash forward kind of moment. And they're like, yeah, this is Katara's imagination of, like, what the future looks like. And she doesn't think that Aang's going to have a beard. So we grew we drew him without a beard. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, it was just it was so potent for them to use Katara's perspective like that. And I think it was just so effective And I love that, you know, you brought up the point of Aang kind of being blind to all of this. Um, You know, again, it's he is trying to be the Avatar, but he is also the last airbender and trying to, you know, it's like forgetting about that. And again, we see we see him reminded of his heritage with kind of the Avatar Aang fan club. But just before this scene and before this, he's like kind of getting so uh, swept away in the fact that, oh, well, you're, you're appropriating, you're not like, this isn't like really my culture, you don't really know. And he's kind of clinging to the past when he is really kind of sharing that frustration because he's not looking forward to the future or he's not looking towards the future. And I think that that is something that Katara is really like adept at doing and just seeing where things are headed and it's just why her perspective is so important and it's just such a great way to share that. So Aang gets that advice from her and then he goes and talks with Roku because uh, Katara's is like look you need to just find a quiet place to make the right choice whatever you decide I'm behind you 100% which is you know it's a very beautiful supportive moment and then Aang goes to talk with Roku and Roku drops the bomb on Aang that's like, Zuko is my great-grandson and I'm okay with you killing him if it's going to kind of like not be all of this again. And it's it's a very powerful moment. I mean, I was very struck by that in terms of Roku. Like, I understand where he is coming from based on his experiences, but still, it's like him being okay with that is very jarring and it clearly affects Aang. Uh, as we see towards the end of this
1: it almost makes me wonder like if the roku ang's talking to if that's actually roku it's like i don't know how to put this like if that's actually roku's soul or if it's just part of roku like maybe just a certain emotion of roku I forget if they uh, actually delve into that in any of the lore, like any of the books out there. Um, Because I think there is like books uh, that kind of gave you a little more insight into the different cultures back in the day. Um, I forget if they ever elaborated on that. But uh, yeah, it really did strike me uh, too that he was like, yeah, you know, just go kill my great-grandson. And he was like, (laughs) wait, what? He's your great-grandson? He's like, oh yeah, but you know... I'm just kill him, dude. I don't care. <laughs> and then he's like, well, uh, I don't know if I should be talking to you anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so
0: again, you know, this kind of, it shifts back and the battle continues. Uh, the metal bending students come in and help, which is, it's so great. Like they're like spinning everyone's helmets around and like, just, you know, they're joining in because they're like, Hey, you is our home too. And we want to defend it. And, um, we see all of these stories kind of like crashing in together. The um, actually the Avatar Ang so- uh, fan club, they have gone in and they are passively trying to stop people from fighting. Um, they are they have covered their arrows in deference and respect to Aang. and it's just like you know it's it's all of these different kind of cultures going in, and it is finally what leads to this like big culmination. Because the Earth King is watching from above. Katara kind of goes to him. And kind of takes him away. And Aang comes back. Makes Yu Dao into this earthen island. Which was so crazy. And Zuko starts falling into a chasm. And Aang saves him. And it leads to this. Whole culmination. With the Earth King. Seeing Yu Dao. And seeing it as a city of mixed cultures. And Katara... Basically says, look, and Katara and Aang both are like, look, we are, there's Earth, there are Earth Kingdom citizens, there are Fire Nation citizens, Water Tribe, and now Air Nomad. We're all standing against this fight. And he says, you're fighting a whole new kind of world. And it is just such a powerful moment to just say like, look, you are fighting progress in the future. By trying to cling to this desire to strut your stuff and show that you are a good, you know, leader who can make decisions now. And it is a humbling moment for him.
1: Yeah, definitely. And it's almost like it's sort of a meta commentary on the first show becoming the second show. And sort of like... The world of Avatar Last Airbender, trying to cling to staying Avatar Last Airbender and not evolving into the legend of Korra. Mm-hmm. It's kind of mm-hmm. how I interpreted that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's just, you know, you can't just be clinging on to that because there's changes coming and you have to kind of, you got to roll with it. Um, and then, you know, Aang goes back to talk to Roku and he's upset with him because now everything's been resolved Zuko didn't have to die and Aang is just he is like taken aback by the fact that Roku was wanting to end this in such a like in such a like violent way and Aang burns the sigil on his like prayer beads and it was interesting because when they were talking about like the uh the use of the prayer beads that he had um they were saying, like, they thought that the way that Ang would meditate was that he would go through the prayer beads through these different chants or meditations, and then when he got to a specific nation symbol, that's what brought him to that particular uh, avatar, which I thought was, like, such a cool way of, like, you know, adding that element to uh, the way that he kind of taps into those past lives.
1: Definitely, and, you know, I think they... Uh... They kind of delve into this more in one of the sequel comics. But I thought it was interesting that he uh, can actually choose to sever his connection um, with Rogue. Because I remember in Korra, um, a lot of people gave Korra some crap uh, because, you know, through – her actions you could i guess one could say you know she's the reason the old avatar cycle kind of ceases to be and now she's the beginning of a new avatar cycle well it's not like ang was perfect either like he mm-hmm. he almost got the cycle destroyed a couple of times <laughs> <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs>
1: for real um
0: yeah and, and i don't know it's it It just, it's definitely, it was like an interesting choice for them to kind of have this. And again, it's like, as you were saying earlier, this is one big story because we circle back to this, uh, with like the, the later books. And it's just, it's so great that they're, they're not only like, you know, using this within the context of this story, but they're keeping in mind future stories as well and how that's all going to play together. Um, so we kind of get to the denouement and we have, uh, Iroh's tea shop, Zuko has is looking well rested and um of course he's having these profound realizations now and even Iroh is saying it's just like I really wish he would have just come to me in the first place and then you realize like god how much of this could have been avoided if Iroh was consulted on this it's like haven't we learned by this point that Iroh is just like <laughs> the perspective
1: we always need in these situations <laughs> right but you know I I think it it goes to show Zuko realizes Iroh's been through a lot Mm, and he didn't want to drag Iroh into this messy situation um, out of respect for him like he wanted Iroh to just be happy in his tea shop but also you know on the flip side Iroh cares a lot about Zuko and he would gladly step away from his tea shop to help him which I think actually that's Exactly what happens in the very next comic. (laughs) Um (laughs) Yeah. But you know, it's almost like Zuko and Aang should have went and consulted Iroh instead of going to Ozai and Roku. Absolutely. Yeah. But I mean it's the natural
0: you it's they would go to that because those are the individuals with the most direct experience with this given situation. So it made sense that they did. Did it make it the right choice? Not necessarily. But in the end, they made the right choice. And Zuko's realization that he has at the end, um, there's that great line where he says, Asking you to end me if I went bad. That was like asking you to figure out right and wrong for me. I didn't just want you as my safety net. I wanted you as my escape hatch. And this whole conversation that they have and this like realization and reflection that Zuko and Aang have together... Aang saying that he's like, look, you, you're you not giving yourself enough credit, and I am a flawed avatar, recognizing that he had those moments where he almost lost control. I think this is where that friendship that we hear about in Korra, how Aang and Zuko became best friends, this is where this comes from, on top of everything that they have been through previously. Because I think they have these just deep conversations, and it That's what they felt like to me. It it felt like when you sit down with a friend after something, you know, intense has gone by and you're just, you are both kind of in the aftermath of that moment and you're being very real and honest and letting those wounds kind of out in the open and you're sharing those experiences and you both grow from them. And I think that that is the beautiful part about this scene with Zuko and Aang and of course, Iroh is kind of the one who helps facilitate that, and
1: <laughs> it, it makes the most sense. Definitely agree. Definitely agree on that. And, uh, you know, we kind of get to see more Zuko and Aang friendship moments as the comics progress, which I really appreciate kind of the uh, level of care that Gene um, goes through in trying to bridge the gap between the first show and the second show.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, And then we get two final scenes uh, in this book. Um, The first is Aang and the beginnings of the Air Acolytes. Um, And he is just, again, bridging that gap to Legend of Korra and Aang being like, look, I realize what you guys were doing was incredible. You were trying to continue this culture and like, I can help with this because I can share with you what I know so that the Air Nomad tradition stays alive and well in this world. And even though there aren't airbenders here, you know, the culture can still be alive and thriving, Um, which I thought was just such a really, really beautiful note with all of that. Um, And then we get a final scene. Zuko talking to an unknown figure, saying how Ozai gave him nothing in terms of finding out about his mother and we we didn't really even talk about that but in the vision zuko saw his mother crying next to roku and zuko when talking with ang at the end was just like you know there i know that there was importance there there was something there and i think that it is at the core and the crux of me understanding what it means to be the fire lord and zuko just being like look We've taken care of this. Now it's time we take care of something else. And he knows that the only way, since Ozai isn't cooperating, to find out something about his mother is to bring in Azula. And we have this frame of Azula in this straitjacket with two medical aides next to her. And it is just, it's horrifying to see her in this state. And, of course, a little bit sad, but very scary.
1: Yeah, you know, Azula is a very scary character, and it's kind of, you know, going back to that whole she's sort of a reflection of Ozai. Um, you know, even though Ozai has lost his bending and he's behind bars, he still has this sort of intimidating presence to him. And I think the same is true for Azula, where even though she's in a straight jacket. Um, you know, even if you're wheeling her around on a dolly with the straight jacket attached to it, I think people would still be like terrified of her.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs>
1: um,
0: so yeah. And I mean, so that, that is the, the promise, at, at, you know, in, in its entirety. Uh, I don't know, what was it like for you, John, to kind of revisit this story in a whole and any new insights after kind of talking about it tonight?
1: Well, so when I first read it back in 2012, I actually only read part one and then kind of half of part two. I actually never read part three back in the day. I skipped right to the search when it came out, and then I didn't finish the search. And I kind of just dropped off the comics because I think I got – absorbed in Korra and then just life got crazy and I kind of forgot the comics were a thing I, I should turn in my avatar fan card <laughs>
0: well no they um, also delayed a lot of the comics something that is still a big tradition with today they, oh, yeah. they, their re- releases are uh, very inconsistent so it, it makes it I was the same way so no it's all good
1: <laughs> we can turn in <laughs> okay. our avatar cards together <laughs> Uh, you know, as far as new insights, um, I definitely think uh, Iro is a very, you know, Zuko says, I didn't want you as my safety net, I want you as my escape hatch to Aang, but I almost feel like Iroh is always going to be a safety net and escape hatch. So I thought it was kind of interesting um, Aang received that. Um, That dialogue instead of Iroh. Other than that, um, you know, pretty straightforward. Uh, You know, it it flowed like a normal episode of Avatar to me. In fact, you know, I really wish you know, even though these comics are already out and everything is all said and done, I really wish they would go back and make these into kind of animated TV mini-movies. Um, And, you know, maybe if the live action Netflix series uh, takes off and is really popular, maybe Netflix will just get a hold of Avatar altogether and actually make that a reality. Um, So definitely to all those that are listening, you better watch the Netflix series or I'm going to come for you. (laughs) (laughs) We have to
0: represent. (laughs) Um, Yes. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I, I guess like for me, the revisiting this story was uh, it was really interesting to dive back into this story now that we've been discussing Avatar so much recently, because I, I got this as a gift uh, like uh, over a year ago. I think it was like uh, my birthday last year or actually it might have been Christmas before that. And, you know, I read it in full. And I had read it in full, like back a couple years ago, not when I, not when it came out, but I don't know, just reading it in whole with these notes and everything, it was a really interesting perspective. And it just, it, I just have so much respect for the whole team behind this for putting this together. And I think it is such a great, uh, first stepping stone for all of these comics in general. Um, I think it is just a great story. And I think that they dealt with a lot of great issues like colonization, cultural appropriation, all of these in a very tactful way and incorporating them into the story. And um, again, the voices, they came across. I read them in the voices of the characters and the artistic representation of the characters is so spot on. I think that they just like conveyed each of the characters so well. And it feels like you said, feels like a lost episode of, of Avatar, and it's it's great. And you know, as we've said in the show before, we're very fortunate as Avatar fans to have this because there are so many shows that have ended and they do not have anything that follows. Sometimes they end without even getting a true ending. It's just recently that Firefly got a like comic that came out for them, and even though there was a movie that came out after Firefly, I mean, they, it was still like to have this so soon afterwards and then to have like in concurrently with Cora it's phenomenal and i'm just incredibly grateful that we have this story and all these other ones um yeah
1: i couldn't have said it better and you know the stories are still coming um you know if and if you listening haven't checked out imbalance yet um i would recommend it uh, imbalance it's a different artist and writer i think um but it's definitely a good story and it's a little more direct with its legend of Korra ties in this one. Mm-hmm. Um, but definitely go back and read this as well because imbalance still plays into the plot threads that are started in the promise actually.
0: Yep, absolutely. Um, and yeah, and, uh, actually, you know, once, uh, we kind of make our way, once, uh, the imbalance makes its way through, you can best believe that we'll be doing a, uh, uh an episode covering those as well. Um, so I think we're going to, we're going to close things out. Um, this has been so much fun. I have enjoyed talking about this immensely. Um, uh, John, thank you so much again for joining me for this uh, episode tonight, man.
1: No prob. You know, I had a lot of fun, too. Um, definitely kind of got my Avatar spirit reinvigorated going back and revisiting these comics.
0: <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah. And again, special thanks uh, again to all the fans who have been supportive. Uh, just been following us on Instagram, liking on Facebook, following on Twitter. Uh, you can find us there at Legend of Portalcast or on Twitter at Portalcast Pod. Uh, you can visit our website to listen to all of the episodes. Um, and if you are uh, listening on iTunes or on Stitcher or any place that you can leave a review, uh, we would really appreciate it. It helps in terms of like kind of getting the word out and, uh, having our podcast show up, uh, in terms of like people looking for this kind of content. Uh, so if you can go in, uh, leave us a rating and review, we would greatly appreciate it. It's super helpful. Um, But uh, until next time and next episode, let us leave.
1: Boomerang!